I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. With me, as always, is that old whitey mammoth mastodon, <laughs> Jeff Goad. <laughs> I would make an insert elephant noise here. I just don't know how to do it. <laughs> is that, is that an elephant noise? That's pretty good. <laughs> and with us, we are honored to have Vicky Lalonde, founder of the RPG Alliance Con, but more importantly, the LGBTQIA plus allies D&D media group, originally of Calgary, now worldwide. Hello, Vicky. Hey, guys. Thanks a lot for having me on. Absolutely. We're, we're, we're thrilled to have you on. Thanks yeah. for joining. So, Vicky, we normally like to ask all of our guests sort of their secret origin story uh, in two parts. The first part being, how did you get into RPGs? And the secondly, uh, what is your familiarity with the concept of Appendix N? So let's start with the RPGs, if you're uh, willing. Sure. Well, um, I'm old. <laughs> and so I grew up basically, I mean, I was nine years old when Star Wars came out, but I was always into comic books. And how I got into RPGs is directly through comic books. And how I got into Edgar Rice Burroughs and John Carter of Mars was because I read the comic book. And then I was in my junior high library, read mm. the books. And when I was in my junior high library, I met some guys who played Dungeons and Dragons and um, was friends with them through junior high and high school. I didn't really get to play much until I got into law school where – some of our some of my classmates were like, let's play D D because law school sucks. <laughs> and we're like, totally. So that's so I got to be playing uh D D uh three point five was my entry into D D, but I also worked in the U of C uh, computer lab and I was playing Mushes and Moods, a uh, Mushes Moods for Vampire the Masquerade. Mm-hmm. And I really got into Vampire the Masquerade through Mushes and Moods, and that was the my adult D uh, or adult RPG kind of initiation mm. RPGs could be so much more than just D and D. And then um, as time kind of progressed, when D and D five E came out, I wanted a way to connect with my stepson. And I said, get off that PlayStation boy. We're playing D and D five E. And it's just kind of gone crazy from there. Mm, great. Amazing. And has your stepson taken to it? Oh, yeah. Like he and all his friends, we ran, um, we did the starter set for a year and we got their parents into it. And two of the parents who met, because their kids were playing D&D and got into the parents group, met, fell in love and have been married for two years. So D&D brings people together. That's amazing. So this was like the Gil Kane uh, Marvel uh, uh, comics back in the day with um, John Carter and... uh, You got it. I still have all of them right here on my side table. Oh, there you go. (laughs) And so um, then you were not playing sort of the uh, first edition, that era of D&D, even though you would have been a contemporary of that era as much. Uh, although you yeah. Might miss, yeah. It, it was a small town. I think I've, I've still got my first box. And I, can't, it's, uh, I can't see it right now, but I've got my box my mom brought back from Hawaii for me. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I couldn't find anyone to play with. I see. That it seems it to be took a little bit of time. And then, even then, the guys in my high school didn't want to play with a girl. Mm-hmm. I really had to finagle my way into that you know 
Come on, you guys. I'll buy you a Slurpee from 7-Eleven. Let's go. Right, right. <laughs> so, but you were reading uh, Burroughs. Were you reading a lot of other uh, fantastic fiction at that point, or was that something that came to you a little later? Yeah, you know, junior high was a real awakening. Finding um, finding John Carter of Mars books, the novels, in my junior high library opened up the whole world of Burroughs. And then I got into Tarzan, which I, you know, I watched the black and white movies as kids. I saw the, the, the comic books, but actually reading the books. And then that's when I got into all the rest of his books. Every, mm. like, I was really lucky that my junior high library had a huge Edgar Wright Burroughs collection. And from there I got into other things. And especially um, Anne McCaffrey's Dragons of Pern mm-hmm. series, Crystal Singer, um, got into Dune. Um, my junior high library opened the world to fantasy and science fiction for me. And I have a love to this day. I just finished rereading Dune for about the third time right, uh, right. two weeks ago. And I'm in love with The Expanse and the novel, the novel series of The Expanse right now. I, I can't get enough of that. But I still go back and read fantasy. You know, it's a nice mix. Right. And you have some special Burroughs cred, right? Because you have uh, a Facebook group that you're a founder or deeply involved with, uh, if you can tell us a little bit more about. I'm a founder because I'm a geek. (laughs) 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 It's the John Carter of Mars and all Edgar Rice Burroughs gaming group. So when Modifius Entertainment got the license to do a John Carter of Mars RPG um, with their 2D20 system, which is the same system that uh, Star Trek uses. Right. And and the Conan. Right. Yeah, the Conan RPG uses. I got crazy with this. I got on the Kickstarter. I got my art, my face in the in the Kickstarter art page. Um, but one thing I've I've done with this is that I did run um, two different campaigns online, um, and we had American and British players playing um, John Carter of Mars. It's a real niche in the RPG world. And uh, last year. I went to Chicago to the ECOF 2019, and I got to meet the lead developer, Jack Norris, of uh, John Carter of Mars, and he was really uh, fantastic. So, yeah, I love Edgar Rice Burroughs. I did um, I did do a one-shot where I I, uh, I wrote a little adventure for Tarzan using that same system, so I'm into it a little bit heavily. Very cool, very cool. So uh, this week we're reading Edgar Rice Burroughs' Back to the Stone Age, which is, what, the fifth book in the Pellucidar series, right, Jeff? Is that right? That sounds right. Sounds right. <laughs> um, but before we uh, go into what we call the library, um, let's just talk about uh, which editions we're working with. And well, yes, it is book five. Yes. Um, so go ahead, Vicky. What tell us which copy you're working with here. Oh, oh God. Just got the Kindle edition. Okay. And Jeff, what copy? I'm working with the 13th printing of the Ace paperback. Uh-huh. Uh, it's got this Frank Frazetta cover. Oh. So here we see uh, we've got uh, Old White up here, the Woolly Mammoth. And then I'm guessing that this is um, Von Horst and his very muscular buttocks that <laughs> we're seeing um, coming up against Old White. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so that's the edition I'm working with. How about you, Hoy? Uh, in an unusual situation, I normally have the Frazetta copy, but today I have the uh, Ace F245 copy from the mid-60s with, I guess, the William Stout cover, I'm guessing. Um, so nice. And it, it's, it appears to me to be the scene in the Little Canyon where, um, you know, Old White uh, barges in and kills the Thrag, just as he thinks he's being, uh, Ron Horse thinks he's going to get killed by the, the Thrags, which are the saber-toothed tigers. So that is the copy I'm working with. 
That is amazing. Also, quick shout out to um, and so Vicky. Before we met, we meet up with you. We we meet up with our patrons, and we do a similar thing with our patrons. And one of them, Demo Saklas, he has a reprinting of the first edition hardback. But like, what's really cool about the reprint he has is it also came with one of the original plates. For I think he has like page like two forty nine or something. He actually has the physical plate that was used in the original printings, um, which they used to make the second printing. Very cool. Oh, yeah. so cool! What I a was very item. jealous. <laughs> totally. So, uh, Jeff, we normally have a Hygaxian word. I mean, there's a plethora of them. So, what's what's their word this week? <laughs> there is, and today our word is dirigible. <laughs> Dirigible, which we've encountered a few times throughout this series, but uh, I decided that we could highlight it this this uh, this episode. And a dirigible is a um, a dirigible airship, especially one with a rigid structure. It's also an adjective, which means capable of being steered, guided, or directed. And dirigibles are found throughout the beginning of this book. Uh, specifically on the very first page, it says the men had come in a giant dirigible with others of their kind through the north polar opening in the top of the world at the urgent behest of Jason Gridley. But that is a story that has once been told. So dirigible is just one of those cool words that I don't feel like you encounter too, too often in 2020. And while it might not be a super D&D kind of word, I feel like it's a super gameable word. Right. You could have a dirigible sky whales or something like that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So that is our Hygaxian word of the day. So heading on over into the library, um, Vicky, what did you think of Back to the Stone Age? Well, I mean, it doesn't help when the first couple pages, you know, you have um, the black warriors and the white men. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, if we're looking at it from a contemporary point of view, but then if you've read some of Tarzan, you realize that um, the black men are the, you know, the the warriors of the Wazari tribe, which we see in Tarzan, and that they are actually held in quite high esteem by Burroughs. So I'm just reading, looking at the first couple of pages going, oh, this is why we're reading this book. <laughs> but as you get into it, it's... Um, I mean, it's typical Edgar Rice Burroughs. We've got the whole damsel in distress. Um, I was kind of shocked because I haven't really gotten to this series that much. I'm more a Barsoomian mm-hmm. fan and a Tarzan fan. But this is really one of the first times I've actually saw a main character strike a woman, a protagonist strike a woman. That was very kind of shocking to me for her own good. And you don't really usually see that in Burroughs from the protagonist. Yeah, that was a disturbing scene at that moment. And I think even, uh, again, one of our guests was mentioning that, I think even Burroughs maybe felt he was a little disturbed because he he wrote about how Sickens Von Horse was di- about it after he had done it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't take away from me. It's still a pretty, pretty bad scene. Yeah, yeah, and in general, we've also historically talked about how Burroughs tends to be kind of a first draft writer, how we it feels like he's just kind of, uh, he, he just kind of writes the whole thing and if he wants to change something later, he doesn't actually go back and change that. He instead, later in the story, will go back and readdress something that he thinks should be changed. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting that after that scene, he then does mention how sick and Von Horst is by it. But that does not make it any less upsetting to see your main character strike a woman like that 
as you said, for her own good. I could see it, though, that it makes sense in the, in the sense that Vaughn talks about his, you know, leaving the modern man contemporary persona of his behind and slowly himself becoming a Stone Age persona. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, although it's funny because all the people he encounters along the way have this oddly sort of um, sort of uh, insouciant attitude towards, you know, they're talking like, well, you might die, but hey, <laughs> you know, hang, yeah. Yeah. hang out with us well, today. And there's a lot of humor that's used in this book. And I also wonder if perhaps the striking the woman scene was a really poorly um, it was a really poor attempt at using humor because I know that like in the 30s, 40s and 50s, the whole thing about like the caveman knocking the woman over the head and dragging her off was like a common joke of the mm-hmm. time. So I wonder if he was trying to do that, realized in what poor taste it was and then tried to kind of make up, make up for it a little bit. But still, if it just ended up landing real bad. I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you guys think that was an, an attempt at humor maybe? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, that scene itself didn't play out particularly humorous, humor, yeah. humorifically, I guess. But there is a lot of humor <laughs> in the book, though, other than that. So. Sure, but sure. I'll leave, I'll leave that. Uh, uh, yeah, I would be interested in your thoughts on that, Vicky. I don't think, I don't know. I, I didn't find a whole lot of humor in it. I mean, definitely, the one thing I like about Burroughs is his protagonists usually do laugh at themselves mm-hmm. and do have kind of a, um introspection about who they are and what they want to be and, and why they're doing what they are. And, um, and yeah, no, I, I didn't find that. I found that there was a humor when they were captives of the mammoth riders and everyone's drunk and going around and you could see him kind of have kind of like a little jocularity in that whole feasting. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. But like you said, every time they go to a new settlement, well, we kill strangers. So why do you want to do this? Yeah. That, I, I'm totally with you. Well, <laughs> He's going after, what's his name, Gord or whatever, Gore. Um, well, he's going to be dead. Nice to know you. See you later. Saranara. Good luck to you, weird right, little right. man. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and to not, again, excuse anything goes, but I did find that the, the women characters were actually drawn distinctly. I mean, you know, maybe not particularly progressively, but they're, they're all distinct characters, right? Lotai, the younger sister, the old sort of shrewish older sister, but who she's also quite funny. Um, oh, she was hilarious when she beat up that the guy she wanted. Oh my yeah. God, her new mate. She yeah. beat him. Yeah, she, like you have to train them early, don't you know? <laughs> oh, she was. I think she was probably one of the most interesting of the female characters. She was probably the most interesting. Right, right, and and the fact that she was kind of upset because she took after her dad, but <laughs> 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 exactly. Yeah. And I think with a lot of things with Burroughs, it's like there's kind of we kind of get both sides of the coin because like on one hand, I also feel like there's this really interesting kind of uh, theme of acceptance that's kind of um, interwoven into the text. Like on page 95, we have the part where he says, I can't help not being a member of your tribe. You can't hold that against me. It was just a mistake on the part of my father and mother and not having been born in Pellucidar. You really can't blame me for that. (laughs) Now, on one hand, he is clearly like, he's very self-motivated in this moment because he doesn't want to be killed. So he's trying to convince them like, please don't kill me. It's not my fault I wasn't born here. But also there's this kind of this message of like, it's nobody's fault the, the way they were born or like what's going on there. And kind of also throughout the Pellucidar stories, we kind of constantly have this thing where like he encounters these incredibly xenophobic tribes, convinces them to be a little more accepting of outsiders. And then as a result of that, 
they become like a little bit more accepting. But the flip side of that coin, the really kind of awkward part, though, is it's again this like white savior who's coming in and like fixing the savages, you know, even to like a ridiculous point where it's like there's that moment where they're walking through the forest and he's like leaving marks on the trees. Mm -hmm. And the tribesmen are like, we've never thought of that. That's so smart. (laughs) And I'm like, they've been around for thousands of years. They never thought to leave marks on trees. Like, come on. I'm not (laughs) buying for a second that Von Horst is the first person they've encountered who's thought of that. Right. Well, it's because of their it's because of their super homing sense though it's not it's not per se because of the they've never needed it right and that was the only excuse that he had before that you know but it's still kind of it's still kind of ludicrous it was a it was kind of a very transparent plot device so that they could be followed right yeah and tracked and pursued yeah Yeah, i mean burroughs has never never went to hide his homework (laughs) 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 one thing when i i had the chance when i was in chicago and i was able to hang out with jack norson the again the lead designer for john carter of mars rpg for modifius he said um and he said this in a lot of interviews that he sees um john carter and i would say in this case as well with vaughn that they're edgar rice's burl's protagonist's greatest gifts or superpower is to make friends Mm-hmm. Um, and you definitely see that in almost every one of his um, series, his novels, to make friends, whether it's animals with um, Old White, that's Tantor from Tarzan all right. over again, yeah. um, which was really nice to actually see. I think that's one thing that he does well, um, and he does that in every series with John Carter's same thing. He makes friends with animals um, using the kind of like the whisperer type of approach with animal using kindness and loyalty. Loyalty, when I was going through the book, is huge. He talks about loyalty, and a const- that is a constant theme running through this work. Friendship, loyalty, the superpowers right. of this protagonist, right? Right, and more so than yeah, than a lot of sword and sorcery or heroic yeah. fiction. Yeah, and you see that in his first encounter and his first friend, right, Dan Gar, um, that he wasn't going to leave him paralyzed to die. He was going to stay and nurse him through the poisoning until he was able to travel. That right. loyalty. And it was I, I thought that whole set piece was, was great, starting from them just lying there in the circle there. And, and Dangor's very philosophical about this. Yeah, well, you, you should go, you know. Yeah. But you're right. That is a superpower. You don't see like Conan or these other characters might be like leaders of men, but they rarely have friends. Right. Whereas all the John Carter characters, as far as I know, have friends. And you're, you're right. That is a, a really uh, strong differentiating point, I would say, Jeff, in, compared to a lot of the stuff we've read, you know, maybe Tolkien. Absolutely. Like looking at, for example, like Lord Dunsany, who's very much like a hunter of great game. And like in Lord Dunsany's writing, like animals are very much like to be conquered and their heads are to be put onto the wall. And when we're reading um, Burroughs, there's a lot of um, a lot of humanity in his animals, you know, and there's a lot of empathy for, for like these, for these like kinds of creatures. So I think like friendship and empathy are, are constant kind of themes that we're seeing that are explored throughout the Pellucidar books as well. Is that kind of what you're getting at, Hoy? Yeah, yeah. And even when the Predators is like, well, they, the, the Predators are the Predators. They can't help, but that's just what they do, you know, yeah. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And I think, I think when you look at the conclusion of this book, when he goes to the camp of these, you know, intruders, he goes and there are all his friends, all that in his whole journey, Dangar, um, you know, Thorak, Lotai, Murnau, all of these friends are at the end 
brought together. And that's the other thing is like you can bring your friends together and now have this sort of alliance in this yeah. strange world and become a leader mm-hmm. by by friendship, using the power of friendship. It's Absolutely. And Vicky, I also really like something you said earlier on about how like you know, we see Von Horst leaving um, leaving the modern world behind. And I think Burroughs does a cool job of also making that very literal because there's that scene where, like, he's, like, walking through the jungles and his t- clothing keeps getting torn. <laughs> and now, like, he gets to the point where, like, he's actually, like, completely physically naked and then, like, puts on, like, a loincloth so that, like, he, like, has some covering. But, like, we see the literal, like, the literal strappings of um, of civilized world being torn from him. Right, right. And, you know, he eventually then, loses the gun, can't, doesn't have that as a crutch anymore, right? Yeah, and there's yeah. two things that I thought were really cool, especially when you pair them side by side. And one was how he talked about how, like, in Pellucidar, I shall never dive on we. So there's this idea that, like, you know, when human beings are fighting for their own survival, we're not just, like, wasting away with boredom. But also there was this other really cool thing I liked, which was on page 141, where um, it says, if there were no strangers, there would be no one to kill except one another, and that would not be good for the tribe. We would soon kill each other off. Men must fight and kill. It is the lifeblood of warriors. So it's like Burroughs is talking about how, you know, modern man is dying of ennui, and that, like, man needs something to fight and kill. Otherwise, like, they don't have a purpose. So, like, it ends up becoming this, like, really interesting kind of, like, look at, like, what does it mean to be a modern human being? And, like, what, like, how are we, I don't know, do, 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 do you get where I'm going with this yeah. at all? Or Well, I mean, in every scene that he actually has to kill somebody or something, it's very personal, right? It's never yeah. impersonal. I mean, I'm not saying it's good, but it's not, like, industrialized modern warfare. Right. It's yeah. not drones from above. It's not a machine gun across no man's land. Right. It's just sort of in your face. Yeah. And I don't know if this is the question that Burroughs is asking, but the question that I get from it is it's like, what does it do to modern society? Um, um, or how do we how do we um, how do we cope with that like kind of human desire for destruction when we don't have like a, an, a, an output for it in human society? In modern society, sports, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> horror movies. I think I think I love that quote that you you mentioned because it just takes me back to the whole bell hooks and the, the whole status of other, right? Yeah. And and every and most of his protagonists always well all of them start out as other, mm-hmm. and then again through his superpower of friendship, loyalty, and higher a higher standard of character with Burroughs characters, even with Tarzan as the noble savage, this higher standard, or there's this kind of, he always differentiates between types of masculinity, between toxic masculinity, and then the gentleman or chivalrous masculinity, that if you have a character with high moral values that translates into loyalty, friendship, then this, this status of other can be changed, can now be incorporated as a community of others that are a community of friends that have become a community of allies. Mm-hmm. And and you see that in almost everything he does. And I was struck by even when the stories are at the sort of most imperialistic, they're never about like um, obliterating the primitive and the other. It's sort of like about meeting the things sort of halfway, you know, it's like there's something to be um, 
learned from, possibly even <laughs> cherished from the this, this so-called primitive. Um, and that, yes, there's these things that can be brought from civilization, but that might completely change the nature of things. Like, okay, what if he did bring back Laia to the modern world? It would be cool, but <laughs> you know, it'd also be ludicrous. Yeah. You know, you know? It would also yeah. probably destroy her. Right. right, it would destroy her her no, noble savage. Right, when he's it alludes to oh, imagining her in modern gar, garments and stuff in at high society you know, finger bowls. specifically, yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, yeah. It, yeah, it would uh, destroy her appeal. Well, and he also doesn't want to go back. Like he loves this life of adventure. Yeah, and he alludes to being like you know, I guess essentially a uh, you know very. I mean, he's written very American like, but he's alludes you know he's theoretically this Prussian you know. Uh, Zeppelin officer, right? Very yeah. straight laced originally, and so literally not wearing like the nice uniform, anything like that. It's just being shredded and falling apart, and um, and yet he's still shaved. Yep, <laughs> and yet he's still shaved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and like was a... mocked for it. Yep, yep. Face like a girl. You have no. You do not have a great manly beard. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, now, Vicky, did you have a favorite scene? Um, I, I I do like everything he did with Old White, I have to admit. Uh, yeah. Everything he did with Old White, with Old White and he escaping together, and mm-hmm. then their travels together, I have to say I, I enjoyed that. But again, I'm a Tarzan fan from way right, back. Right. But that bond with and the loyalty to one another with another species really always appeals appealed to me in a big way. So, yeah, that was probably my, my favorite scenes with him, per se. Right. Well, that's the the real love story in this book. I mean, in all honesty, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Hoy, did you have a favorite scene? Um, I mean, I really liked that set piece at the beginning because it was it kind yeah. of re- recalled the first Pellucidar book with the pool and and the yes, uh, yeah. So that kind of sense of horror. And so because mm-hmm. we don't normally think of Burrow as a sort of a horror author, right? Mm-hmm. But he, that scene is potentially quite horrific. Um, and remind me a little bit of Dragon Slayer too. You remember when he goes down into the the. Uh, the movie where where Galen or whatever goes on and he sees like the the remains of things have been eaten by the baby dragons, um, oh. but I I did like all the scenes whenever he comes to a new village and they're like, <laughs> you know, he's like, well, why should I be treated badly? Well, you're a stranger. Says, you might die, but you won't die right away. You know, <laughs> <laughs> or the whole thing where where. Um... Scruff was like, yeah, my village will be happy to welcome you and mm-hmm. you can live there forever. Right. <laughs> yeah. it, it always amazes me when you read Burl stuff. You can see the betrayal coming. He foreshadows it. You see it coming chapters ahead of time. And then the whole always the naive shock. Oh, my right. God. But you were our friend. You promised us. Mm, yeah, mm, right. not so much. Right. I guess that does point to like a lack of cynicism in Burroughs' protagonists. Right. Yeah. And then. Yeah. And the, but the humor of the the portrayal, so it's there. It's like it's, it's almost like uh, you know, cartoon Snidely Whiplash kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>? exactly. <laughs> it is funny that Scruff didn't end up dying though, because I had thought that Scruff had died. You know, and that was pretty interesting. So, similarly, my favorite scene though was that whole opening scene. I thought that that was like a really horrific. Uh, easily one of the scariest things that I've read in quite some time. And it also reminded me of kind of that scene in um in the first book but um but then that also kind of pairs with like my least favorite scene in the book and it's not my least favorite scene for any reason other than how poor how much it was built up um the the little canyon 
Mm-hmm. Now the little canyon mm-hmm. was fine. Like the, it was actually a very fun action-packed sequence. But like it kept being like, oh, just wait till you get to Little Canyon. Mm-hmm. Oh, you'll see what happens when you get to Little Canyon. There was so much buildup that I thought something really like fucked up and crazy was happening in Little Canyon. But like it's just kind of like a coliseum. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think the buildup. I mean, I kind of maybe sense it coming, so I, I just didn't really feel that that wound up about it. And and I knew that somewhere old white was, you know, <laughs> as soon as there's a mammoth anywhere in there, there's old white just kind of sneaking in and the, Oh, there he is. <laughs> <You Totally. know? laughs> but just with how cool that opening scene was and yeah. how cool, like the fountain scene we were talking about in the first one with the Mayhars, I was expecting something like really wild was going to go down mm-hmm. with little Canyon. Like I thought they had something really strange planned, but right. no, it's just a fight to the death right. with a bunch of animals I, and other prisoners. Right. I thought the other great set piece, was with the bison men when he's running along the top of the cliff and trying to chase them down and yeah. try to capture, uh, re, you know, uh, stop them from capturing uh, Laia. Uh, and what about the Gorbises? <laughs> They're hilarious. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that whole, that's another thing he does with different races, per se, right? Giving them this innate, instinctual, or this that particular thing with a racial memory of all the murders they've had along with the other other groups with their instinctual sense of direction to their birthing place he does really cool weird stuff with people but man those were weird right right and there was an almost an implication that the Gorbuses were either sort of reborn or mm-hmm. people from the modern world who had somehow yep. been reborn in in Pellucidar or escaped down into Pellucidar as of, though this is like the hell that they're in like yeah. for, for for their crimes on the surface. Right, right. And even then there was the humor about like uh the chief's like, oh, oh you're, you're getting fat. You're getting fat. He goes, oh, am I? <laughs> you know? Yeah. When they're all eating. Gonna, they're going to eat you first. Yeah. <laughs> and the other guy's like, don't eat me. Don't eat me. I'm still skinny. He says, well, I will kill you anyway. He goes, oh, I promise to gain more weight. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So now, Vicky, is this your first Pellucidar? I have to admit it is. I was never really turned on by the theme of the inner core kind of world before mm-hmm. so yeah this is my first i mean i sh- shouldn't say that edgar rice girls fans are going to say i'm not <laughs> legit anymore no no well, no what was the what was it that didn't appeal to you just the impl- the, the the step too far in the implausibility or or what was that just that didn't quite catch your imagination in terms of the pellucidar versus barsoom and tarzan it is a pretty straightforward man in a frontier all natural lack of technology kind of setting and mm-hmm. for me I, what i really liked about barsoom is the imagination science is limitless mm-hmm. the the technology the flying ships uh the different nine rays for energy sources i think in barsoom the world building it's much grander mm-hmm. and the sky's the limit and he even has space traveling crafts here is this very basic and if i if I was going to get into this, except for, you know, the dinosaur type things and the mammoth, it was just a recreation to a certain extent of the same man and the, you know, strong white male gone native in right, the wilderness right. thing. Right, right. And I, and Tarzan, I think, did it better, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Sure. Now, the main reason I'm asking if this is your first Pellucidar is because in the Appendix N, when Gary Gygax lists out the authors he thinks people should read because they're they're a good source of inspiration for D&D, he says Edgar Rice Burroughs, and then he specifically says Pellucidar, Mars, Venus. So maybe there's no rhyme or reason for why Pellucidar is listed first, 
but it is listed first and it's specifically listed. So I'm curious, do you, while you were reading this, did you feel like, oh yeah, this is really D&D for X, Y, and Z, or did this not feel very D&D to you? Um, no, I didn't think it really felt D&D to me at all. Yeah. No, not for me anyway. Um, just because mm-hmm. in, in D&D, there's no magic or scientific kind of elements besides the innate abilities of the different races, right? There's no, mm-hmm. and that's D&D to me has that magical element. Even Conan with sword and sorcery has sorcery, that kind of magical element. So yeah, for me, not so much. Again, I'm going to get in trouble <laughs> in the fan base. But no, no, not, not so much. No, for sure. I think Conan. The police are going to come and arrest you. Yeah. <laughs> I think Conan for sure was in Barsoom. And, and that's why uh, Gygax, you know, everyone has the, the PDF of Warriors of Mars, right? The game that Gygax wrote um, mm-hmm. for Barsoom that right, he got right. in trouble for writing. But um, I think you really see. Um, the strong influence Burroughs has in that module that uh, Gygax wrote. I mean, I think the appeal, yeah, I mean, it's not, it would be much harder to map it to D&D one-to-one compared, and I know, like, also Barsoom has all sorts of, uh, like, uh, labyrinths and all sorts of exciting stuff like that, although there is a a cave set piece in here, a couple cave set pieces, so it's not like there's not, uh, but it's not really a dungeon. This is more more like a BX adventure, Jeff, like, um, X1, mm-hmm. Isle of the Unknown, or something like that. It's the, the, a hex crawl type situation. Yeah. Um, now, was there anything that you guys encountered that you want to steal for your own games? I, I think, again, like you said, the first set piece um, with that the monster and the, the nest and the eggs hatching, I think that is really cool. Um, it'd be really a fun... Um, you could do a lot of traps and stuff to try and get in, try to get out, Um yeah. I mean, the thing is, Burroughs has some really amazing monstrous creations in his works. And mm-hmm. like you, I think I think that first set piece, that was like the highlight of the book for monsters, really. So, yeah, I would totally steal that in a heartbeat. Get get my players paralyzed from the neck down. And <laughs> what are you going to do? Yep. Yep. Uh, one thing I'm challenging myself to do is to actually steal the things that I'm talking about that I would like to steal. So I have now added kangaroo pterodons to my random <laughs> encounters table for my awesome. D&D game. Yeah. So at some point, they may end up encountering some kangaroo pterodons yeah. that may lift some or all of them off. Right. And if it's only some of them, they will they will see the cone that they are dropped into. Right. So they'll know where they are. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. You know what? I'm running White Plume Mountain right now, and that would be awesome to mix it up because I know a lot of my players are cheating and that I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that too. I'm stealing that Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I like that. You're stealing the thing I'm stealing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've noticed a a constant thing with D and D players, which is like, they, they so much hate getting captured or losing equipment that they would rather their characters die than Mm -hmm. than happen. And I want to push them to more being accepting of like getting captured and then, thinking their way out of the situation. And so that's that just as an overall ethos, because that's always a thing in Burroughs, right? They always get captured at least three times per book, right? <laughs> yes. And lose everything and, and lose become everything. slaves. And that's actually neat. Actually, if you don't mind just jumping in that, almost mm-hmm. all Burroughs works have some kind of form of slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, you see that's a reflection, I think, absolutely of him, his American cultural upbringing. Mm-hmm. But this is a slavery that. His slavery is an egalitarian type of slavery. Doesn't it's not based on anything so much as your gender or your color. It's just your social status, and you've been captured. So now mm-hmm. you're a slave. Yeah. Right, you're an outsider, and that may be more reflective of this sort of 
uh, ethos. I mean, he was in the West for a while, I believe, right, as a, cap- a cavalry mm-hmm. man or something. Maybe more reflective of the sort of the ethos of sort of um, the Native American versus white settler rather than the race slavery that was in practice in the South, right? Like, we do know for good or for ill that there were Native American tribes that would capture and raid other tribes mm-hmm. and, and have them as, as captives. And, and, and so... I'm sure there were probably similar things in Canada. I mean, it's not a, it's not a good thing, but it's just maybe that. And of course, it's glossing over all this other horrible stuff. And I think the role of slavery is uh, again another great plot device. That means we're not just going to kill you because you're a stranger right off the bat. We're going to put you in as a slave, and that way you can work yourself way out of the the throughout the plot. Right? The story doesn't just end there. And I think he uses slavery as a plot device on almost every uh, novel series he writes to keep the story going. Right. That's the classic uh, A1 against the slavers series, right? That in the original world of Greyhawk. Um, I think the other thing that's been a big discussion recently in gaming circles is, uh, you know, um, humanoid, um, you know, races, orcs, kobolds, hobgoblins. Are they inherently coded as, um, you know, racist or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um so whether or not you actually had humanoids, I like how Burroughs finds a way to differentiate the tribes. Um, I mean, it's stereotypical in a way, but that they have their own sort of little sort of touches of like, oh, this is a culture. So you can have this orc culture that rides mammoths and they have this attitude towards captives and you can have this orc tribe. Mm-hmm. Or if you don't use orcs, you just use regular humans like Burroughs does. You can still do it and say, okay, this tribe has this feeling towards captives. You know, you're a captive. It's still terrible, but, you know, this is how they treat captives, and you might earn your freedom through bravery or trickery or anything like that. Um, so that might be an interesting way to sort of think about it and approach um, the use of sort of intelligent, you know, two-armed, two-legged, you know, uh, antagonists. Can I add something to that? Sure. Uh, so one thing I actually thought was interesting about this particular book, and, and again, in Barsoom, there is a wide, several different races, yellow, red, black, white, uh, Barsoomians, right? In this, though, it was interesting when he first sees Dangar, uh, his first friend, right? Again, it's, we, there's an assumption of Caucasianness, right? He's got black hair, and it doesn't really get into his skin color. And then you get to Laja, and again, there's an assumption of Caucasianness, but she has the blonde hair. And I thought that was, again, I mean, if you're asking me what I prefer, I like Barsoom with the diversity of races. That mm-hmm. Each race has, you know, are, are not flat, stereotypical races. Um, just talking, you know, following up on your discussion about humanoids, they each have different things technology-wise, cultural-wise that differentiates from other races. But here it was just really, really flat. Yeah. And, the, again, the assumption of whiteness – I didn't really like. And yeah. I, I've, I've heard that this was sort of considered a sort of a low point in his writing career. Like he wasn't just in, he just wasn't as invested or he was just, you know, sort of burnt out. And, um, you know, he sort of had a revival sort of like in the forties, mid forties in terms of his, his ability to sort of, you know, tackle this. Um, but the Pellucidar series, you're right. It seems a little bit flatter. Although some of the earlier stories, some of the characters are coded as a little bit more like, um, Mesoamerican or a Native American, right? They have they're known as having like bronze or red skin, and it might even be like Polynesian South Pacific Islander, um, you know, sort of motifs. But here, you're right; it's it's kind of more just like attitudes rather than any kind of um, you know concrete mm-hmm. uh, attempt to create cultures and civilizations. And if you guys don't mind me uh, going back to an earlier thing we were chatting about. 
you know, in terms of like things that we would steal. I also think that using the the situation where we met Old White could also be a really cool way to uh, a cool thing to bring into a game. Like, I think it would be neat if the next time I rolled a random encounter, if it makes sense, whatever the thing that I rolled on that random encounter table, the PCs are going to find, but they're going to find it stuck in this trap trying to get out where it's injured and it's trying to get away. And on one hand, this might be a very dangerous creature that they would be afraid to approach. So maybe they would just let it die. But perhaps if they do help it out and try to set it free, maybe there's a chance that they have now kind of gotten on the good side of this creature, which may end up coming to benefit them at some point in the future. Sure. Uh, Young Dragon. For a game called Dungeons & Dragons, dragons aren't really used as much as you would think. So (laughs) a young dragon of some sort. Um, something that has they have quite... breath weapons, which might make that that part a little trickier. But yeah. yes, yes, you know any number of creatures, but in large, large megafauna. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, last night in my Icewind Dale session, um, we did the um, foamy mug, and uh, they had a goblin cart that was being pulled by two polar bears, and my players went to great. Um, great extent like extensive means to try and free the polar bears and save them and then heal them so yeah i and so i'm like oh my god you guys are really into the polar bears right so it's like <laughs> one of those things i'm gonna do exactly what you said now that they've done that and helped them and healed them uh, i'm definitely bringing the polar bears back as a recurring kind of uh, guest star are they just regular polar bears, or like are they like the bears in like the Philip Pullman books? You know, armored bears that have a uh... no. Unfortunately, <laughs> not. They were just enslaved by those nasty goblins oh, there you go. to pull this wagon around the tundra. Yeah, but no, no. But uh, they could be. They yeah. could become that. Definitely. There's that um, common mantra now. Like, if you don't know what a monster is, just reskin bears. You know, because it's always <laughs> like a, it's always dangerous. It's just dangerous enough, right? And exactly. <laughs> <laughs> totally. How do you guys feel about firearms in your D&D games? I'm, I'm okay oh, with that's them. That's a good, good, good question. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We've, got a, we've got a pistol. Yeah. And the pistol gets lost, and, we ne- and I was ex- kept expecting it to come back. Didn't you? Yeah. And you kept expecting this. Right. Yeah. It became a character in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. Didn't it? Yeah, it did. It did. Um, even with that, I mean, he, he was careful to sort of lampshade its limitations, right? I mean, not just the ammunition, but like, you know, if he wanted to get a good shot on this thing, he had to really get close. A couple of times he thought, you know, I'm not going to be able to shoot that thing. It's too far. Or even this thing is just too dangerous. There's no way I'm going to take it down with just a single shot from my pistol, right? I might have to, you know. Um, I'm okay with it um, because, you know, you've got magic missile and fireball and all this other stuff. Um, but you just have to make fire you just have to think about what your context of your game is is it going to be like up to the level old west technology is it just going to be black powder single shot weapons is it going to be what is it going to be you know yeah and and like black powder slash like old west technology is definitely not my style of play but throwing in a piece of technology like a pistol or a laser pistol or something that doesn't belong in this world and the people don't know how to use it and it's got and once it's out it's out i love that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's useful ways to self-limit this kind of stuff if you're... I mean, uh, for some people, it just breaks their immersion, and, and so I get that, you know, but... I also think there's a style play, too, with players, and there's just some players that will always want to do melee-based combat, mm-hmm. and, and you can throw in a ranged weapon like a, a pistol, but it isn't going to ch- change that they want a big battle axe, they're going to up and close, and they just want to go barbarian rage on somebody. 
and it's all like how how like simulationist are you trying to be with your gaming? You know, it's like right now I I'm I'm totally fine with the wacky and the gonzo. Um, like I've got a lot of random charts that we use in our games, and in my in the last session of the D and D game I run. Um, somebody was like looking through a shed to like find something. So I had him roll on this, like this, like D 10,000 table. I have of like random items. And the thing he r- rolled up is a uh, figurine that had um, a um, inscription on the bottom in Russian. And <laughs> I, I Googled what the, what the Russian is. And the Russian says Vladimir Lenin. So this is a statue of that Vladimir Lenin. And the the character was uh, the player was like, okay, well, I'm going to break it open and see what happens. And I was like, all right, well, I can think of six different things that could happen. So I'm going to write <laughs> these six things down, and then you're going to roll a d6 for me. And so they did that. And one of the things that I wrote down is that the statue will grow to giant size. So now our campaign world has a 40 foot tall Vladimir Lenin. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in our world. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm fine with non sequiturs, right? You know, stuff like that. We, we, yeah. Every D&D game already posits the existence of a multiverse, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. And very briefly back to firearms. Um, just from a game point of view, I mean, I know that Pathfinder has like a gunslinger class and that, you know, Pathfinder is so concerned with balance that they mm-hmm. managed to have that class and not blow up the game, right? There. And conversely, in classic D&D, once you get past, you know, fifth or sixth level, um, by classic, I'm meaning, you know, second edition, first edition, because uh, I know that the later editions strive to balance magic users versus fighters, but fighters are basically a big bag of hit points after like, sixth or seventh level they don't you know unless they get some really crazy magical weapons so i wouldn't have a problem with you know a fighter having a six shooter because the, the magic user is going to be dropping like these d10 fireballs on stuff you know so what's a six shooter going to do in terms of changing the balance of the game yeah right? totally yeah and D has the gunslinger class two from critical role from matt mm. mercer right okay for and five. and also in eberron where there's more of a tinkerer kind of you know class um, that's also something that's very plausible in that setting with Eberron. Uh, you know, and before I've been kind of against it, other, unless I was sort of genre mashing, but I think because of my sort of re-entry back to D&D was partly through Lamentations of the Flame Princess, which is set largely in the 17th century. So we're, again, we're talking about Black Powder, Musketeer era stuff. Uh, you know, Three Musketeers didn't stop being thrilling uh, just because they had firepower guns, right? Mm-hmm. And it's literally there in the title, Musketeers, right? So. Right, right, right. <laughs> So, you know, but again, you know, as long as you find a way to self-limit it, right? And whether there's, you know, uh, ammunition is is hard mm-hmm. to come by or, you know, the rate of fire is not such that you can do much more than, uh, you know, fire off one volley and then you're in hand-to-hand combat. I mean, even the the John Carter books, right? I mean, while those ray guns, he's still the greatest swordsman on Mars, right? So, mm-hmm. so. And Dune does a great job of that too, right? With the shield fighting. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they have to fight with the 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 sandworm tooth knives and the, the sorry mm-hmm. car have their weapons and stuff like that so um but you're right i mean the hand-to-hand combat has that sort of personality and that narrative so it's always good to make sure that you're not turning the game into purely ranged combat gunpla- gunplay um especially if you want your villains to have their set pieces and to be able to twirl their mustaches and, and do crazy yeah. stuff like that so what other uh things do you think from a, a gaming point of view i mean Again, you say it doesn't map to D&D, but the idea of captives and, and these other things, what other things would you think about from 
this book or just burrows in general that you think you don't you don't see enough in sort of gaming as as it stands the part of the problem i think that i'm i'm really struggling with dnd is this you know you go like it's there's not a whole lot of actual role play that's happening especially with newer players they they don't know how to role play how to get into the the, the persona. So I like Burroughs in the sense that he builds cultures. He builds really interesting characters that have a backstory and have their own motivations. Um, a lot of them are romantic because he does the space opera romantic stuff all the time. Um, but that's what I'm fine with D&D, especially especially with some of these modules is that, and I know Icewind Dale's is trying to do a little bit more where there's personal relationships and reasons why you're doing what you're doing. And I think with the, um, when you get into a longer campaign and you can build that with your characters, you can have a backstory and arc with the characters. And I think that's what Burroughs does really well is do character arcs for mm. at least his main protagonist and their little entourage of sub sub characters or supporting characters. And I think with D and D everyone's just you know, like buying the modules and just doing the, the action base, but they're not doing the, I'm a level one character. What is my story, my personal story that I'm going to do as I get to level five? Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I really try to put into my games. And I really like the, that answer and your focus on character. And, you know, kind of speaking to Barosian characters, what, were there any characters in this story that you think would either be really fun to play as, as a player or you think would be really fun to bring into your game as an NPC? Oh, good one. That is a really good one. I, I can't remember his name, but the mammoth rider that he befriended. befriended what's his name again? Th- um, Thorak? Or Thorax? Like Thorak. Thorak. My Thorak. God, I like that guy. Nope. <laughs> if you want to be boss, you have to take me down first. That whole escape <laughs> from uh, that one tribe where there were all slaves in the caves. You got to take me down first, and then he takes him down and goes, okay, he's boss. We're doing what he says. <laughs> I love that guy, that character. He was so much fun. And even when he returns back to the mammoth people and he can't quite save Vaughn, um, you know, he's just so he's got a great comedic element to him. And he's like that big, big bear of a man character that is just your big bro. Right. Right. I yeah. love that character. I would love to play him. He is funny. And to ride a mammoth. Oh, my God. That would be so awesome. I love the constant buildup of Gaz. And then it turns out Gaz is not that bad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, I realize he's just, you know, he's, or it, but it could actually be that Gaz really is that bad, but Von Horst has leveled up. He just doesn't realize <laughs> that he's leveled up, you know? <laughs> right? Yeah. So, um, totally. I like, so, so I like the idea of lampshading a villain, right? Like, oh, mm-hmm. or, or, or not lampshading, but um, prefiguring a villain. Like, oh, yeah, this thing, you know, and then maybe it's like two or three sessions later on before you actually even encounter them. But, you know, just start yeah. dropping names to give the world a little bit of reality that's lived in. And it's not just what the p- players see right in front of them. I think that's what Curse of Strad does really well. Mm-hmm. Like just the build up for who and what Cur- Lord Strad is, right? And it, mm-hmm. and it builds through the whole module that he is so much more than what you see in the beginning. That That is a wonderful character arc as they get to know and experience and encounter him more and more. And Vicky, how much, uh, you've talked a lot of what you're doing in 5e, how much do you sort of push against the stuff that's in the and expand all the stuff that's there in the sort of the 5e modules that you're talking about which are sort of the major campaign modules that are being released uh you know in the last couple of years right oh my god we're just bringing female characters in whether it's villains or, or or npcs just bringing female realistic female characters in and and just in icewind dales we we're having this problem okay what are, how are we going to get our characters why are our characters going to icewind dale 
Well, they mm-hmm. have the Arcane Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. So it's very gender specific. So I talked to my players. I had four women, one guy. Let's let's take the gender out of this brotherhood and make it an arcane syndicate, and they have hired you to go. So just taking some of the the the, the overt kind of patriarchal tropes that D and D still uses, even though this Icewind Dale was written with a lot of female writers, there's still not a whole lot of female voices or. Um, non-binary voices. I mean, they have, I think, one or two characters, but they're not main characters in the story. So even having uh, encounters with NPCs that have a little bit of a queer element to it Mm -hmm. um, and taking out any kind of sexual violence, absolutely no tolerance for that. So this whole damsel in distress stuff that we see in some of the earlier D&D stuff, and especially in Burroughs, we, nope, not doing it. Mm-hmm. Are not using that. Do you think there's a um, a place for that, given the right group and the right, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, consent within the group and, and with the player for that kind of stuff and, and exploring oh, for, it? Sh- for sure, but it's boring because we've seen it over and over and over again. So, sure. I mean, uh, I, gr- I think the great thing about this time in D&D that everyone's so many diverse people are being attracted to it. People of color, people uh, on the gender spectrum, um, people from different nationalities, people from different cultural backgrounds that can bring in their own cultural folklore and that sort of thing into it. it it's a, it's a, a more than just the whole white Western civilization mythologies that we see, you know, coming into it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really beautiful point for us to maybe like wrap up on. Um, but very well said. Thank you, Vicky. Um, is, was there anything else about Back to the Stone Age you really wanted to chat about before we wrapped up? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I'm sounding like, you know, feminism, fe- feminism. But uh, Laja, man, she could have been so much more interesting. And yeah. I do think Deja Thoris and Burroughs is interesting. Thuvia and, and, and uh, Burroughs is so much more interesting than, uh, than Laja. And she just... I mean, her alternative is to run away or kill herself. And I'm just like, oh, come on. Even Jane from Tarzan is so much more interesting. So I I really wish Laja, she had a lot of spunk. She had so much potential. If they did a second book with these two main characters, Vaughn and Laja, I just wonder if he would have done something more with her. She, he kind of yeah. wasted wasted her, and she right. was had so much potential. Right. He left all the characterization for Grom and, and Lotai instead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, um, Vicky, is there anything coming up that you would like our listeners to know about? Oh, yeah. And again, thanks – Thanks a lot for having us. I just want to do a shout out to our a mutual friend, Trevor, that connected with us. Um, he and I are organizing the RPG Alliance Convention. Usually it's an in-person convention here in Calgary, Canada um, at Dickens Pub. But this year with COVID, we've gone online. And we started going online with our games from the LGBTQ uh, plus straight allies D&D uh, meetup group in March. So we actually were very fortunate that we have a lot of DMs and GMs that are good online and so stepping online is just mean we can invite all of our friends that we met at Gen Con and UK Expo to come play with us. So that's coming up November 20th, 21st, and 22nd online. You can find us at Tabletop Events um, for our con site and join us. And we're Perfect. supporting the, the Calgary uh, Veterans Food um, Food Bank this year as our charity initiative. And we also have a sliding scale for folks that um, 
maybe are facing some hard times right now, just uh, email us and we'll get you a VIP pass and you don't have to worry about the money thing. It's about building community. Amazing. Terrific. And if somebody wanted to join either of the Facebook groups you were talking about, how can they find those? Sure. Uh, on Facebook, we have a page and a group, but the group is where we all chit-chat and hang out. It's uh, Just look for RPG Alliance. Um, that's where we are on Facebook. We're on um, Instagram and Twitter using the RPG Alliance as well. Um, and also we're on Meetup, RPG Alliance, and again, again the LGBTQIA plus allies D&D group. Uh, that's group is where everything came from right because that's the group that we run regular games from the convention is usually once or twice a year so yeah you can find us on all those social media and do you have a um a personal social media presence you want to point people in the direction to or should people just look for rpg alliance well just look for rpg alliance i mean i use my gamer name because i'm a lawyer and i don't really want all my ex-clients finding me <laughs> so I, I, <laughs> you'll, you'll find me on the facebook and and meet up as vixter the organizer and so yeah that's that's just great there you go and your Perfect. uh john carter erb group is also on facebook as yeah. yeah just just look for john carter of mars gaming and you'll there find you us terrific cool all right, Hoy, and how can folks find us? Right. Uh, we are at appendixnbookclub.com. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And if you want to give us some feedback, you can send us an email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. And Jeff, what about our Patreon? Yes, please head on over to patreon.com slash appendixnbookclub where you can show us your support. Before our episode today, we had a really fun patron book club with Deimos Saklas and Adam Styers. We would also like to give a shout out to a few of our patrons. Thank you to Frank Maybe, David J. Hotstream, Noah Green, Lucio Nothlich Pimentel, Adrian Romero, and Christopher Murray. Thank you very much for your support. And just to let everybody know, our next two episodes, episode 81, will be on H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror and Others. And episode 82 is going to be on Manly Wade Wellman's Sherlock Holmes' War of the Worlds. So, Vicky, thank you so much for being on the show. So much fun and an honor. Great. Thank you. Lovely to meet you both. And thank you for letting me join in on uh, a little Edgar Rice Burroughs love. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>